Hi, I'm Samantha, a past guest on CJAM's HandyLink. You're listening to HandyLink on CJAM 99.1 FM, reaching high ground in Windsor, Detroit. Welcome to HandyLink, sponsored by the Italian-Canadian Handy Capable Association, an organization that provides recreational and athletic opportunities for individuals with disabilities in Windsor-Essex. For more information, check out ICHA on Facebook. I'm your host, Cam Wells. In this segment of our show, we'll hear from Sammy Joe Johnson through the interpreter, Leah Riddell will be telling us a little bit about her experiences as a deaf person. So, can you tell me a little bit about your work in the sign language community? I'm a deaf individual, and I actually wear two hats. Um, so, in one role, I provide training to small businesses and corporations how to include best um, practices for communication and strategies like that. And then, in my other role, I am involved in promoting the Sign Language Act and really getting recognition amongst the government entities. So, in your work, do you ever encounter any myths or stereotypes or misperceptions concerning deafness? Certainly. Um, often the perception is very um, sad because there is a fear of deafness and that view of how deaf people live and um, to work with deaf people, they think that people can't navigate the world, they can't be promoted or successful, and they can. It's just really a different way of communicating, just like speak, working with someone who speaks French or another spoken language. I think, unfortunately, there is a um, perception of more looking at deafness as, from a medical viewpoint as opposed to looking at it as a cultural and linguistic group. They do have a language with that which includes grammar and structure and syntax, and we even have formal recognition from the government that it is an official language. And so it's important that we get education out in the community so people can recognize that. So, in that sense, how do you go about providing education to clear up the myths and stereotypes concerning deafness? Really, by being present. When we're present, we can show people what communication looks like, what different tools and strategies they can use, such as what we're doing here, um, getting people to understand. The interpreter is there for them, not for me. I can communicate just fine. Those people don't know sign language, and so they need the interpreter so they can understand how I'm communicating. So we need that understanding in the workplace, um, recognition out in the community, and also to provide maybe sign classes maybe that are geared to 
specific environment or even just general communication. So, you know, really simply put, the communication is just different for deaf people than it is for other people. And we can use different strategies like writing, gesturing, signing. There's lots of strategies that can be used to communicate with deaf people. So that being said, do you find that when you do meet someone new that uh, being present sort of builds a bridge of their own understanding so as to put a real human face to the deaf culture rather than just what they may have been told or what they may have seen in the media? Absolutely, for sure. Um, often people have heard stories about deaf people or maybe even the media often the, the way we're presented is about fixing deaf people whether it's through cochlear implants and we do understand um, cochlear implants and, and fixing deaf people is a for-profit business um, it's some often viewed from a medical model and so I think people are surprised when they meet me that I'm very easygoing, it's easy to engage, and I think the, the fears and expectations that they come with are kind of eliminated and we're able to interact with each other and engage. So, what's been the greatest success in building those bridges of understanding? You know, I really find that when I meet hearing people, um, they are often just afraid. I don't know what to do, I don't know how to communicate with you. And uh, sometimes the conversation starter is just, I don't bite. And people then, you know, they laugh and then they start to engage, whether that be via an interpreter or just communicating directly, maybe through writing or gesturing. And then they understand I'm someone just like they are. And it's important to note, I don't speak for all deaf people. I am one person. And so just because you've met or interacted with one deaf person doesn't mean that you've seen the whole experience that deaf people live. But what it's shared for us is all is that piece around communication. If you can just use different strategies, we can communicate. So that communication builds that bridge. So do you find that service professionals and uh, organizations of that nature have enough of an understanding to provide provide things effectively, things like medical treatment or uh, even just shopping day to day. I don't. I don't think they have the enough under uh, understanding, which is why I'm in business, right? Um, I think often they think there's only one strategy, which is either interpreters. And quite frankly, lots of people don't want to pay for interpreters. And I understand there's a cost associated, but um, our human rights does require people to provide that. But also what they are missing out on is that deaf people come with all kinds of knowledge and expertise, degrees, experience, and they're often not hired or services aren't given to them because maybe they misread people's facial expressions and that come, goes back to language. I think if they understood that part of facial expressions is part of the language and so sometimes we're misread as being angry or you know hostile and so I think that often people come with preconceived notions until they actually meet a deaf person and so that's where I provide training and awareness and even with organizations we want to get people in to really have an understanding of what deaf people experience and really um, empower people to have a more positive experience. So if you could send any message to the community about the need for greater inclusion and steps forward, what would you say? 
Hmm. You know, I would first recognize what they're doing well. And then follow up with where they can make improvements and how they can make things improve. And it's not just for deaf people. When you think about people who maybe are autistic, um, nonverbal, we have lots of variations and lots of parallels in our experiences. And it's really about breaking down the barriers that are in communication. So what are the next steps in your work? For me, for my work, it's to continue to provide training and reach as many people as possible. We did start with big corporations and small businesses, and we're really trying to keep that going. We've had other businesses that are doing similar work and just really trying to get that message out there and continue to educate the, the public. We really need to shift their thinking and reframe their mindset. And it's not a disability issue. It's a communication and language access issue. So, where can my audience go about finding more information about the work you do? Um, there are two places they can go. So, first, the organization called Ontario Cultural Society for the Deaf, OCSD.org. And then my business, Signable Vision Incorporated. We provide, from Signable Vision, we provide lots of awareness and training. So, those are two resources people can access like to thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Sure, absolutely. Thanks. In this segment of our show, I'll be chatting with Christina Alati from Thrive Therapeutic Arts. So, can you tell me a little bit about Thrive? Um, sure. So, Thrive is a company I started just um, before the pandemic started. Um, and it's uh, art therapy and psychotherapy for anybody, really. But um, the population I've worked with the most is with people with disabilities. And uh, that includes intellectual, developmental, and physical. Um, so I offer art therapy um, at different locations. It could be centers for, um, like, centers that are vocational centers or long-term care um, things like that, or in person, at sometimes at people's group homes, um, and other times just um, at people's own homes. And I just recently started uh, having an office space available too. So, in terms of the physical disabilities, do you use any modified equipment or techniques? Um, for physical disabilities, I guess. Uh, because mostly I do art therapy with people, I guess I just have a variety of materials available, and um, I don't think there's anything too different from how anyone else would use them. <laughs> um, I guess I just try to provide a variety of things that everyone can find something that works for them. So, what are some of the benefits of uh, art therapy? I'd imagine there's a huge mental health impact. Mm -hmm. So art therapy is a great way to um, help people express their emotions and also is very empowering for people that may not have another way to communicate or express themselves, especially um, for people with, um, you know, cognitive disabilities. So I find that people usually um, thrive when they use the arts. That's like a very 
um, universal language that everyone can communicate with. Um, yeah, so, so the benefits are that it gives people a voice that might not otherwise have one. Um, and it's a way to kind of like express emotions that might be difficult to express with words alone. So I'm guessing this can be used for someone who uh, might, for example, have been through a traumatic experience and needs an outlet by which to express it, vertivert therapy being used this way. Mm-hmm. Trauma would be one of the, one uh, issue that art therapy would be great for working with that. Um, other things would be um, any kind of abuse or even just someone who's looking to um, expand themselves creatively or um, work on their self-esteem and um, all kinds of different goals. It could be any anything that someone would go to uh, another type of therapist for, art therapy can be applied to those type of situations. Could be anxiety, depression, um, other mental health issues, and of course trauma, abuse, those type of things too. So how do you reach out to the disability population to let them know that your work is available? Sorry, can you repeat that? So how do you reach out to the affected communities to let them know that your your services as an art therapist are available? Um, as of now, I'm just beginning to reach out again. I started before the pandemic, and I had gone to um, the DSO Fair that was taking place in Toronto around um, November 2019. So there they have different booths and things for all the different services available to people, and I was able to join in that and kind of... Uh, uh, just let people know that that's out there, and I got uh, a lot of good response from that. Um, and then just a few months later, the pandemic hit, so everything kind of had to go on pause because nothing was <laughs> nothing in person could take place for a while. And at this point, I'm just uh, making connections with different schools, um, different people that I've worked with in the community that work at their own centers, um, my former workplace, all, all different connections I have in the communities. <laughs> it seems like the community is kind of all connected, like all the different services. So that's how I've been kind of putting my name out there. So what are some of the challenges of being an art therapist and tailoring the programs to provide real and lasting benefit? I guess one of the main um Struggles, I guess, would be financing. I think that a lot of, um, it, I mean, it is challenging to provide a service and then also make it very cost-effective for people at the same time. Um, like, I'm not government-funded or anything like that, so everything that I provide is, like, paid for either through myself and through whatever I make. Um, so funding is an issue. I would, I would wish to provide services for, like, as little as possible, but I also have to be able to afford, you know, like, the art materials and um, all the different supplies that I need. Um, that's what, I guess that's one of the main challenges. And then, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know if there's, 
I guess since the pandemic, now just opening up again, it's like a whole world of possibilities again before it was safe to do so. So now I'm just having a whole bunch of other issues, even finding the location to work from, um, finding a, a space that's accessible to people. I have been able to find an office space, but that's not, <laughs> it's not actually accessible to anyone in a wheelchair. So for anyone like that, I'd have to actually go to them instead. So... In your time as an art therapist, has there been any success that stands out for you? Absolutely. There's been so many clients that I've worked with over the years where um, people have gone from not being able to communicate their emotions, not being able to express you know, what's happening for them or what they're feeling, to actually being able to either through words or through other forms of communication, just like sharing their emotions, expressing them. I've seen a lot of healing happen through the arts. Um, yeah, it's opened up communication between families. Um, it gives people a voice and just a sense of like inner peace for some people who've been struggling with anxiety and depression. I'd like to thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Sure. Andy Link will be right back after these commercial messages, so stay tuned. When you use a WarAmps key tag, you protect your keys. If you lose your keys, the finder can call the WarAmps or drop them in any mailbox. And the WarAmps will return them to you by courier for free. Order your key tags today at waramps.ca. Welcome back to HandyLink, sponsored by the Italian-Canadian Handy Capable Association, an organization that provides recreational and athletic opportunities for individuals with disabilities in Windsor-Essex. For more information, check out ICHA on Facebook. I'm your host, Cam Wells. Earlier in our show, Christina Alati told us a little bit about art therapy, and Sammy Jo Johnson spoke about her sign language advocacy through interpreter Leah Riddell. In this segment of our show, we'll hear from Jeffrey G. from the Neuromuscular Disease Foundation. So, can you tell me a bit about the Foundation's work? Yes, the uh, Foundation was formed about... Uh, 2009 uh, by a, a woman whose uh, daughter was diagnosed with this very rare disease, GNEM, um, and she didn't know what to do. And she thought, well, I, the one thing I can do is reach out to my friends. And she formed a foundation. Um, foundation has expanded. We're now the global leader in terms of this particular um, disease. And uh, we've raised more than $10 million towards research. Uh, it's a rare disease, so obviously uh, you know, funding is not easy. And what we tend to find is that the people who give to the organization obviously have a connection to the disease, the friends, family, caregivers. It's a very, uh, I'll call it interesting, but it's interesting in a bad way. This disease started probably 2,500 years ago in Asia, well, actually in the Middle East, um, and Persians uh, who were traveling the Silk Road and went everywhere in the world managed to spread the disease 
Uh, and today it's a global disease. We have representation in about 50 countries uh, around the world. Uh, a great preponderance of, of people in India, uh, some in China, uh, many in America. I say many. It's about six per million who have been diagnosed with the disease. And uh, so having started as a very sort of close disease, it now has transmitted everywhere. There are innumerable variants. I was talking to a chap in India the other day, and he told me that he had the Bulgarian variant and that he'd been, his family had been in India for generations. So whether that be the gypsy variant, where it be Romanian, Bulgarian, um, that's exactly um, where it's got to. So uh, we spend an enormous amount of money on research. We have scientists all over the world uh, doing deep research into it. Um, the Muscular Dystrophy Association, which would be the better known partner of ours, uh, um, this is a form of muscular dystrophy. Uh, it tends to affect people in their 30s and 40s. The usual tell that there's something wrong is that they have a foot drop. Um, and then once they find the right doctor, because that's always the issue, and then taking it from a foot drop to, to what is it? Obviously, MRIs and the usual stuff that they do, um, and they can then diagnose it. So, today, how does the foundation go about reaching out to the affected community and providing support? Well, we're very proud of ourselves. We've, uh, you know, websites obviously are where everything starts, um, and obviously we do have a, a, a website. But we also have a particularly strong team of people we call certified patient advocates. And there are about 20 of them all over the world. And next to them or above them are patient advocate program managers. They're also patients. We have one in Israel. We have two uh, in the U.S., one in England. And anybody who sends an email to us at our info at address will get a response. And our role is to educate, facilitate. Uh, anybody who thinks they may have the disease, even they don't have the disease, maybe one of our advocates and help them put them in the right direction um, with a doctor uh, or a scientist uh, in their particular country. In that sense, uh, do you ever encounter any myths or misperceptions about the disease? Yeah, constantly. Uh, misdiagnosis is the biggest problem. Um, it takes a long time, particularly, well, in the U.S. it's, it's way better. But uh, overseas, I think it's fair to say that, you know, recognition of this disease, if it's six in one million, most doctors will never have seen it. I mean, neurologists in general, um, I happen to have MS, fairly easily diagnosed. But once you get into a real rare disease, it becomes a whole other problem. So a lot of misconceptions, misunderstandings. Unfortunately, as we speak today, Cam, there is no cure. Uh, obviously, whatever the word cure means, there have been clinical... Whoops. There have been clinical, clinical trials, um, but no cure. 
obviously our scientists are spending an enormous amount of time, and I have to say money, in trying to find the cure. Um, and we're all hopeful that that will come very soon. Um, the misconceptions, um, it's, a, it's a concern for a lot of families, because if you happen to have two carriers, and the chances of those carriers combining and producing a, a, an infant with GNEM are obviously much higher. So we advocate for testing. We have a group of young people, we call them our ambassadors, and they're out in the community as best they can, talking to young people through churches, synagogues, mosques, wherever they can to let people know there is a possibility you might finish up with this as a problem. But it doesn't mean you can't have children. As IV, in vitro fertilization, and options, adoption, obviously. So, you know, it, it means there are still opportunities. But if we had enough money, if we were the Gates Foundation, that we basically could get everybody tested, um, I think we could get towards eradicating it in the next generation. But I think the most important thing is education. And we do have a, a great outreach into communities around the world now uh, to educate people. So what are the next steps for the foundation? Well, like any nonprofit, our role, of course, is always to fundraise. What are we fundraise for? Obviously, for science. We're, we're very lean on the ground. Um, we have two full-time employees. I'm one of them. Seems I work six days a week, 18 hours a day. I love what I do. Um, and we have one other employee. We have a few consultants who help us. Um, but generally, our overhead is minimal. So our fundraising is always for the goal of raising more money for research so that we can move ahead and find this cure. Our hope is that we can get an IND um, approved by the, by the FDA within a couple of years, which will lead us on to a path to a clinical trial. We're talking to biotech companies all the time to see if they've got any interest. A cure for this would be a cure for many, many of the other rare diseases. And I'm told that in the category of rare or ultra-rare diseases, there are something like 7,000 different diseases. So, you know, it's, it's a big pot, and all we have to do is find uh, the right partner to, uh, to help us not only raise more money, um, but allocate it in the right direction. Right. Thank you for taking the time out to do this, but if you can stay on the line for a sec, that'd be great. Sure. It was an honor for me to have Sammy Jo in this episode, not just because she brought a very real perspective to deaf culture and sign language rights, but because she was a student of our late friend, Dr. Marcia Ryu, who helped me in the early days of this show provided ongoing support through critical disability studies at York. This was someone who was a great advocate for the disability community, and it's always my honor to welcome any one of her students or any one of her contacts onto the show. For the fact is, 
As a community, people with disabilities are stronger. We need voices out there, sharing our real-life stories, telling people we're not just a statistic or some line in a medical textbook. We are people with stories, rights, hopes, and dreams. I'm pleased to say that's what Sammy Joe and the others did in the interviews today. Truth is, disability shouldn't exist in a closet. It shouldn't be something that we think about when, oh yeah, we have to look after them too. No, it should be something that's always foremost in our minds, saying, are we making this inclusive? Are we making this accessible? And if not, what can we do about that? The fact is, it's easy to assume people with disabilities are being included, they don't raise their voices and say, hey, I should count too. Now, I maintain that consideration should always be equal. We're not entitled to more, we are not entitled to less. We are simply part of the community. And we are a capable, intelligent people. And the more we can assert that for ourselves, the better our chances of bringing that into the minds of others. And once we reach the hearts and minds, inclusion ceases to be an afterthought, a chore or some obligation we need to check off a list. It becomes just a matter of respect and human dignity. This has been HandyLink. I'm your host, Cam Wells, reminding you we're all equal, so get on out there and have yourselves a good one. Something tells me you've earned it, folks. We'll see you next week.